morning again. It's wonderful to be with you. The church is a people. It's not a building. Amen. It's wonderful to be with faithful in Christ today. Take your Bibles and go to the book of James. In just a little bit, we'll consider one verse in the book of James that has everything to do with Job. It'll be a few minutes before we get there. For those of you who are guests, today we've been studying the book of Job. It's a book of wisdom. And we're going to take the next couple times we're together as we've concluded the content of the book of Job last Sunday morning. As is wise with wisdom literature, it's good to conclude with some extensive wisdom applications from this book uh, as we seek to live for the Lord and, and, and grow in Christ likeness. So we'll be doing that this week and the next time we're together. And we'll land the plane, God willing, time-wise in James chapter 5. But let's ask God's blessing on our understanding of his wisdom from this book as we continue. Father, we need your help today. We thank you for the wonderful privilege it's been so far in this service to have many come together and to worship you, our audience of one. I pray that everything that is seen and heard by you, including the declaration of your word this morning, would be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. And as we listen... Help us, Lord, to listen as worshipers and not consumers. Help us, Lord, to, by the Spirit of God, understand from the Word of God uh, that which is for us personally today as we seek to grow in Christ's likeness as a church family. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. I can remember early in May of 2014 my mom was diagnosed with cancer um, it seemed to be caught early and we were given great hope that with a little surgery and a little chemotherapy that she would be able to live out the rest of her days in good health we didn't know that three weeks later she would be taken from us so from the day of diagnosis to the day of her passing it was just about 21 days. I can remember in her final days at the Cleveland Clinic, um, I would spend time with my dad, with the family, and then go into the room and spend time with her. I tried to cap capture as many moments as I could by myself with her. And, um, there was some time in her final days where I just needed to get out and take a walk. I was being consumed with a lot of human thoughts. I had exhausted pretty much every promise I had memorized in God's word that I had, was able to share with her. And, and it was difficult for my mom to go from being seemingly a perfectly healthy lady to being completely paralyzed by her cancer from the neck down in just 21 days. And um, so I was struggling by, with myself, applying scriptural promises to me, speaking them to her. Uh, but really, I just came to 
the end of myself. I came to the end of my own theology. Uh, I didn't have anything left, I felt, to offer my mom. And so I just needed to take a walk that evening and, and uh, commune with the Lord and see what else I could do as not just her son, but as her pastor to gather myself up to go back in and to offer her more encouragement in the Lord and my dad as well and, and the family. As I was walking around the hospital, I went up one floor and just walked around that floor. And um, as I was praying and I was walking, I would just be able to passively observe other people going through some pretty difficult things. I can remember passing a room of young married couple. The wife was very, very sick. They'd only been married for a very, very short time. And her situation was terminal. And I thought, wow. It's kind of unfortunate with them. I wonder if they know the Lord finished walking around that floor I got in the elevator went up to the next floor and um, there were children on that floor and, uh, walking around that floor um, I saw young married parents with their first child who was terminally ill and grade schoolers with terminal cancers and I thought my goodness honestly I, I don't have it so bad as I'm looking at these people who haven't been able to even enjoy their mom as long as I had enjoyed mine and didn't even have a maybe a grandmother in their existence to enjoy them and found out as I was walking that the clinic had built a, an observation deck where people could just go outside and have a nice view of the city and just have some quiet moments to gather themselves and gain some perspective. So I made my way up a couple more floors to that observation deck and I was out on that observation deck and, and below I was just watching people coming and going from the hospital people inside coming and going, people below coming and going, and, and I'm seeing just about every kind of patient <laughs> from that perspective that the clinic was caring for, many of them in circumstances that were much more grievous than mine, and I felt mine was, quite frankly, pretty grievous God in that walk with him and that prayer time with him and that observation was allowing me to gain a perspective that I needed he did the same for Job we've studied that haven't we his circumstances were certainly much more calamitous than mine as tough as they were with my mom's situation 
There were really five life phases in a few short months that we studied that Job endured. The peace of mind with the Lord, his family, his community, possessions. He was saturated with the goodness of the Lord all around him, and that's where we find him as a faithful, godly man, husband, father, community leader. The second phase, we see him experience calamity to his family, to his possessions, community relations, and then the second phase of that calamity, we saw God appointed him to be personally afflicted, physically afflicted. The next phase, we find him speaking appropriately of God, right? He, he's actually running to God and speaking properly of him. And months into his enduring his calamity, we find him weakening and questioning an attribute or two of, of God's, including his justice. And in the fifth and final phase of his life, we find him back in fellowship with God and even though his circumstances aren't changed he's walking with God and he sees him as as good and he's been given a perspective again where God's grace has compelled him regardless of the degree of agony that he had endured to value God more than people and possessions Posterity, position in the community. He's restored to fellowship. What amazing patience the Lord shows Job as he allows him to learn of him and demonstrate that grace has taught him that there's really much about God that he did not know. And we know from Job chapter 42 and verse 3 that there would be much of God that he would never know. These things, after God's monologue to him, are really too wonderful for me to know. But really, folks, isn't that what this book is about? Isn't it really about God and the development of his relationship with man, with us? This book is saturated an understanding of who God is. It's in the prologue where God ordains Job's affliction. He directs it and he oversees it, even to the degrees of the severities. And he accepts Job's faithful response. After his wife asks him to consider cursing God and dying, he says, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil too? So God is Sovereignly overseeing in the early days, in the prologue, in the dialogue, which is two-thirds of this book of three of his friends pretty much teaching him the same thing, speaking for God all along the way, but not speaking well of him. Yet all the debate was really about the character of God. Job's friends attacked. 
with a theology wrongly applying God to Job's situation, trying to teach him that he must have been right with God when he was wealthy and well. There must be sin in his life now because he's not so wealthy and well. And Job says, no, this is not retribution theology. This is, this is not who I am, and this is not why I'm suffering. There, there's something more, but yet in their debate, all four speak much of God. God is all through this book to be understood and by some misunderstood. And certainly by the time we're done with the dialogue in two-thirds of the chapter and we come to God's monologue to Job, God uses 80 different interrogatives that he asks Job, 80 questions. The first group of questions in relationship to Job understanding more about God by observing nature itself. He is the God of nature and then final grouping of these questions this relationship not to the God of nature but to the nature of God and Job do you really understand me can you truly know all about me and then there's the epilogue these are events that take place after the final chapter has been written and what do we see Well, at the beginning of it, we see God rebuking and demanding and accepting worship of Job and then his friends and restoring everything to Job twofold. God is pleased to choose to restore not just fellowship, but people and things to Job in a much more manifold way than he originally experienced. One author has said that suffering is merely the catalyst poured into the crucible of life to demonstrate the chemistry of the divine human relationship. As the suffering intensifies, Job's soul is compelled by grace and faith to bear up under the intense pressure of the calamity and at the same time value God above all and in the end, though he struggles comprehending an attribute or two, he proves to the angelic realm and everyone who knows his story that God is number one in his life. In a very superlative way and before God chooses to restore anything to Job, Job declares that he values God above all. So in each section of the book, coupled with each phase of Job's spiritual formation and perspective development. God's cultivating a relationship with man, and that is the subject. God is the subject of the book and the focus of Job's attention, as he needs to be ours. Even the characters represented in the book are to reflect the character of God or to speak that which was wrong of him. Remember Job's wife? She speaks not being a foolish woman, but she speaks, remember the language? As a foolish woman would speak, but she is never mentioned again. We're left to speculate that she's walking with God and still married to Job months later when God gifts them with 10 more children. 
God's mercy extended to Job's wife is ridiculously evident at the end of the book. It's still God's sovereign over her situation. Job's three friends, as we've already said, all speak of God or was grieved by what they had to say of him. But God is gracious and grants them the opportunity to offer a sacrifice and to have their relationship restored to him. God uses Elihu to speak correctly of the Lord and to Job, a young messenger of mercy to remind Job that God is perfectly and sovereignly just in all of his ways, even if he chooses to afflict evil upon man, even one of his own children. Everyone knows now, as the Lord restores twofold all that Job enjoyed, that what Job said at the beginning, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, is truly Job's pledge of allegiance. We can really say in this case that everyone knew that God gave, he took, and he gave back double, and so blessed be his name. This was a God who chooses, but chooses intentionally and purposefully for eternal reasons. And in a 50,000-foot view of the whole book of wisdom, we see God as sovereign. He's always in control of your circumstances. He's always at the control of at the controls of any degree of affliction you endure, whether you are the victim of another one's abuse, if you've been abandoned by family, even if the Lord removes everything you've enjoyed living in the American dream, he's still got this. He's still at the controls. He may even allow you to fluctuate in your affections for him in the process because he knows without faith it's impossible to please him and he knows that you're a person of faith and in the end you will endure your suffering. We find out he's not just sovereign but he's benevolent. It's always most difficult to remember that God is good to you when nothing good seems to be happening in your life. I can remember fishing for the first time on a small craft in Lake Erie we were about nine miles out fishing for walleye. A wind kicked up. My guide, it was just me and him, my guide who's a Christian friend of mine said, hey, if something happens to me, um, I want you to look at that spot on the shore. And you see that little spot that kind of bumps up right there? I said, yeah. He says, well, if something happens to me, and I said, what do you mean if something happens to me? What do you, yeah, you have plans? <laughs> right? Uh, this is a small boat. We're on Lake Erie. You know how quickly... It can become quite choppy. It's one of the second most shallow body of water in the world. I think the first is the Sea of Galilee. First time I've ever been out on a boat that far. And he's telling me something might happen to him and I would be captain of the vessel. But he's, he points out the spot on the shore and he said, if something happens to me, keep your eye on that spot. And I said, okay, why? He said, well, because you're going to be tremendously distracted and you're going to want to take your eye off that spot. And I said, a small boat, it's not going to go very fast. He goes, but put the throttle down, keep your eye on that spot, because that's where we put the boat in the water. He said, that's where you need to go. And he said, just keep going. He said, it's going to seem like you're going nowhere fast for a long time. He said, just don't take your eye off that spot. Value that spot for your own safety. 
So I thought about that in relationship to Job's story here. What did he focus upon when the torrent winds of calamity crossed the threshold of his life and they do the same for us? What's his spiritual shoreline goal, if you will? What do we find Job doing? Rehearsing the assurances of who God is and what he's like? Remembering what God has done for him in his past, for the past of his people? We find Job remembering how God's proved himself and his word to be true in his life. He's kept his eye on that shoreline goal. He's used what he's understood about God to compel him to persevere through this whole time. The Lord reminded Job in his monologue of his benevolence time and again, even in the animal kingdom, so much more would he care for Job than he had even cared for the animal kingdom? There's so much we learn from God through the story of Job, but even Job proclaims that there are things that are too wonderful for him to grasp. That's what he says in chapter 42 and verse 3. Well, friends, the immensity, the infinite nature of God is just too much for Job or any human to comprehend. But yet, we pursue a more full knowledge of him, and that's the story of our life. Always in search of knowledge of God, knowing we'll never fully able to comprehend God. We invested three weeks at the beginning of our study in considering God and his nature. He truly is immeasurable from a human perspective. Just think of your Bible. It has, it has two covers. It could be about two inches thick with a large print edition, maybe two and a half, three inches. And it can fit in a small sliver between two other books on your bookshelf. It may be placed on your nightstand after evening reading. You can lift it and simply place it down again and it doesn't tear a muscle in your arm or, or crush the nightstand under its weight. It's a volume. It's an inspired preserve volume. It certainly has granted us enough understanding of how we can be reconciled to God in Christ and certainly has given us more than a lifetime of information of pursuing knowledge about God so that we know how to pursue Christ's likeness. But this is not the whole story of God. It's much more than that. It's much more wonderful than that. Things that God told Job and Job rehearsed back to God, they were too wonderful for him to ever know. Remember what the author of the Gospel of John said at the end of the life of Christ? Many, many more things the Savior had done for those he had created and those he had saved and so many things that no number of volumes in the world could ever encapsulate the work of Christ on earth. It's too much for man to absorb. Consider again the 80 questions God asked Job, for which Job has no answer. The answers are left with God alone because he doesn't even share them all with us. I remember snorkeling with my wife a few years back. We 
just circling or trying to circle an island that was pictured. If you ever watch Gilligan's Island, you know that little island that's kind of in the opening, right? Where they went on a three-hour tour and they were abandoned on that island. Do you remember that? Does anyone not know what Gilligan's Island is? Probably everyone under 30, right? Google it. Watch a few episodes on YouTube. Find out what good TV is. No, so we're in Hawaii and, and, and we're told we're going to go snorkel around Gilligan's Island. It's like, this is the coolest thing ever. I get to see and snorkel around this island I saw on TV as a kid. Turns out it's just a bump in some water and it wasn't the place they actually filmed the show. It was just in the picture at the opening of the show. But it was Gilligan's Island to me. The winds were strong. Each time we put our faces into the water, we could see every creature from the shallows to over 100 feet deep. I remember swimming next to a big old sea turtle. That was amazing. It seemed to like me swimming next to it. I was glad for that. We'd swim and swim, and each time we came up to talk about what we had seen, we realized we hadn't moved much at all because the wind was so strong. But we would see something new and amazing every time we put our masks in the water. And after about 40 minutes, we were so exhausted and equally amazed that we hadn't gone very far at all because of the wind. But every time we looked down, we saw something new that we could rehearse with each other. And then we realized we hadn't gotten around the island much at all. As a matter of fact, we felt like we were still in the same place we started. You see, folks, that's what trying to grasp a full understanding of God is like. Every time we put our mask in the water, it's amazing what we see, and we come up with something new. But you're never going to feel like you've made it fully around the water, and if you do, you've got pride problems. You could memorize the whole of the Bible, and you'd still be left wondering more about God. The Bible is an inspired word. It's a preserved word of God. We know that, yes, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yes, we grow in our understanding of who God is from the word, and it's all by grace. But even when done reading or memorizing the volume of Scripture, we come up from the deep, and it's too wonderful for us to even fully comprehend it. You know, you, know, you always feel more and more that every time you study the Bible, even if it's a familiar passage to you, there's more truth that comes out of that familiar passage you'd never seen before, and you wonder, there's got to be even more. Amen. And that's just one passage. That's the nature of the Word of God. But it's just one volume. Someone said that God's revelation furnishes ample evidence to justify faith, but also ample opportunity to exercise faith. He has designated it that way. He has not revealed everything there is to know or everything we'd like to know to answer all of our curiosities and iron out all of our systems, end quote. Did you know that there's more to God than what's revealed in the word of God? Eternity, folks, will not be enough time for us to fully understand who he is and how and why he acts, because even in a sinless state, 
God will forever remain eternally infinite and we finite. Are you okay with that? There's no need for just one volume book called the Bible in the kingdom to come even. The living word of God, Christ himself will be enthroned in Zion and his light will be the light of the whole world in a very literal and spiritual way. And even with Christ's presence on earth for a thousand years, we'll, and, and us in sinless return to rule over the world bodies and personhood, we'll still have limited knowledge of all he's fully aware of being himself in the universe that he rules over. There will always be in this life and in the next more to discover and to know about the Lord. This is why Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I don't ever want to feel like I've arrived. I've got a long way. I'm a citizen of heaven. Drawing an analogy of heaven, I'll still be spending my time there wondering and learning about God. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, will I pursue the high calling of growing in Christ's likeness. My friends, don't ever feel like you've arrived. Don't ever feel like you're doing and obeying and studying the Bible better than someone sitting next to you or behind you. Don't ever feel like you exist on a higher plane than some other believer because you have more Bible degrees on your wall or because you've mastered a certain way to extract truth from the Word of God. In your lifetime of learning, even if you sleep three hours a day, uh, three hours a night, and study things of the Lord the other 21 hours of the day, and you live to be 100 years old, you only have moved two spoonfuls of theology, of ocean sand, and put them in your knowledge bucket. Job said in chapter 26 and verse 14, behold, these are the fringes of his ways. The word fringes means coastline. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways, and how faint a word we hear of him. God to Job was like me nine miles out in that boat in a storm, and I'm looking at a coastline at one spot for my safety. There's a whole lot more of that coastline than that one spot. And what's behind the coastline? If you're a pioneer to the United States, well, North America at that time, you'd have 3,000 more miles to pursue. And then north and south, not just east to west. The greatest admonition Paul gave to us, therefore, is in 1 Corinthians 13. Yes, there's faith. The body of our doctrines, know as much as you can. Yes, there's hope. We all have a living hope. And there's love, but the greatest of these is what? It's love. It's the first mention of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. It's the first divine virtue mentioned of God in the only New Testament passage where the person of God is defined against the backdrop of the story of Job. And that's James chapter 5 and verse 11 where your finger is. 
juxtaposed to the potential selfishness of even professing wealthy Christians is God's character right alongside the suffering of Job. And we read this early in the book of Job. We'll read it here again and fully explain it next time we're together. We count those blessed who endured. Verse 11, James 5. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and he's merciful. The word outcome here is the Greek word telos. It literally means the purpose of the Lord. You have seen the purpose of God in the dealings of Job or in the endurings of your, calamit your calamities. He has a goal in mind. You can take that goal back to James chapter 1 and review it. There's a purpose of the trial of your faith. But in all of the pain and in all of the agony, I find it interesting here that James, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, defines these two virtues, these two attributes of our God. And it's his goal to demonstrate these attributes to us during and throughout our whole suffering, even unto the end. Job knew that even if God had ended his life after his repentance and before he would restore all that Job had twofold, that God would usher him into the end of the Lord, which is only the beginning then. If Job breathed his last while he was inflicted with boils and entered the presence of God, his end would be a glorious new beginning. And that would be a demonstration of the mercy and the compassion of God for him. Because God loves his own and he will love them until the end of the age. While we live, we learn. And while we learn of God, the outcome of our lives should be love and mercy. Gaining a continual perspective, not only that other people might have it worse than you do, but in Christ, every believer that's graduating and enduring through affliction, whether in this life or in the next, God's mercy and God's compassion are everlasting and for us to be enjoyed as his children. God was merciful. To Job, he's equally merciful and compassionate to us. There's coming a time when we will reach a higher perspective than we've ever attained to. A time for us when the trouble of our own sinfulness will be no more. A time we'll have a perspective that will allow us to know that our end on earth is only the beginning of knowing God. Jeff got that perspective Saturday morning at around 2.30. It's the perspective Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 2.9. He says, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which we have entered in, nor have entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. In the end of our struggle, 
God will again reward us with himself for all of eternity. So let's live humbly now in light of that blessed hope of not just the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, as if that wasn't glorious enough. Humble yourself under the idea that even in a perfect mind and a perfect body with no Bible, with a literal Jesus around you, you'll never fully be able to comprehend the infinite, but yet intimately know it. So many more things. So many more wonderful things. I trust these promises will encourage any of us that are enduring life's most difficult things. I felt like I needed to finish that this morning. I didn't feel like I needed to finish that at the beginning. We have two baptisms. The testimonies are short. But what a glorious bookend to our service. To start it with the Lord's Supper and to hear about God's mercy and compassion, the stories of two folks that have come to know him as their Savior. So let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we love you. We, we thank you, Lord, for this glorious understanding, this humbling understanding that yes, we can know you in Christ. We can pursue a knowledge of you in Christ. And we seek to do that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But help us, Lord, to take a knee in your presence, understanding that our learning journey will be for all of eternity. What a wonderful journey it will be. Help us to realize the hope of that learning journey to the point where it would help us endure well here. To take our eyes off of our circumstances and to more certainly put them on you as we seek to learn of you and that your purpose is to demonstrate to us your mercy and your compassion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.